You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you are still taking your survey, please feel free to do that because if you stop, you'll probably have to restart from the beginning. So go ahead and do that. Many of you can multitask. So listen to me 90% and survey 10%, right? Thank you all for doing this. And by the way, if you did not have the ability in the service right now to do this or at home, uh, just want you to know that there are paper surveys back in the event center. You could grab one of those and take it here or just return it to us or when you get home. Just go ahead and go to that same link. It's on the church app. And uh, go ahead and do it. The more we have, the more we can design our ministry to be effective. My hardest question last night on the survey was, which service on the weekend do you attend most often? (laughs) And it was, I kept checking each of them, and it would let me choose all three. So, well, you've all been in this situation, I guess, where you're wondering how someone knows what it is you're going to ask. Maybe it's been at a parent-teacher conference, or, or maybe it's been at a bank when you're meeting with a banker, or maybe it's been uh, uh, just with your boss, or, or sometimes, let me just give you an illustration that maybe you can relate to. Maybe it's you're buying a new car, or you're buying a car, and uh, you're about to be ready to make the, you know, the commitment that you're going to buy it. And the salesperson says, now you're probably wondering about, and you think, I wonder how he knew that's what I was wondering. And then he answers, then he goes, now you probably, your next question is, and you go, how does he know that? And he'll go ahead and answer that question, and then the next one. By the way, not only have you been on the receiving end, depending on your work, I bet you've been on the giving end. Because what it is that you do, you've done so many times, you know exactly what someone's going to say. In fact, I'll tell you, on my way to grow class, that I have now taught that class for more than 40 years, when I'm driving in and my wife and I are talking about it, I'll say, now today's class is, and the questions will be, and almost always I'm right on track. It's not because I'm smart at all. It's because I've done it so many times, I know the questions it will raise. Now, here's the thing you want to remember. The Apostle Paul has now been a Christian for more than 20 years as he writes the book of Romans. He is now finishing his third missionary journey. He's been all over the Roman Empire. He's talked to hundreds, and I don't think I'm exaggerating to saying thousands of Jewish Christians. And he tells them that their circumcision and their Judaism is is not really what's going to save them. And they they go, wait a minute. And he goes, hold it. I I know what you're going to ask. And he asks four questions. That's where we're headed today as we see Paul seem to read our minds. Or at least read the minds of his readers in Rome as he asks some questions. So take your Bibles, your sermon notes. Those of you who are really going QR code crazy here today, uh, if you want to just download the uh, or have the sermon notes completed on your uh, uh, on your church app or on your phone, just go ahead and aim at that, and you can have those notes and follow along if you'd like. Many of you use the paper notes, so so join me as we dig in. There are two things we're learning in this series. You've heard me say them now. This is the fourth, fifth time. The common denominator for mankind is sin. We're all sinners. We all know that. I don't have to say any more. Secondly, we should stop accusing those who sin differently than we do. 
and realize that we're all in the same boat. Our tendency is to think about other people who sin in a different way and think that they're worse. Now, they may sin more. There are people who sin more and people who sin less, but sin is sin, and that's the point that Paul's making. We are all sinners. I'll real quickly tell you what we've learned. We learned that every person is a sinner and that sin is not only repulsive to God, but it's repulsive to us. I keep using the word disgusting because most of us would say, when I think about those sins, it's disgusting. We've learned, says Paul, that we'll start with the most shocking people, the pagans. That was back in chapter one, starting with verse 22. We learned about those pagans, we call them heathen, whatever. They don't care about God, they don't think about God, they live their lives. Sin to them is not sin, they just live for, for the moment. And Paul says they're foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Man, they're shocking. And, and then we move to the next group of people who we like. They're not as shocking, they're the moral people. The people who want to live in a good way, want to... Even if they don't believe in God, they want to live in a way that kind of fits into society. But we are reminded even, even they are sinners. And then we move to us. Now, Paul says the Jews, but he's referring to any religious person. And he says, I know you think that when you compare yourselves to the other two groups, that you've got it made. But you have to understand, I'm sure you understand, says Paul that we are all sinners and it doesn't matter who you are or how you were born or how you grew up, we're all sinners. Next week, we'll begin to wrap this up. We have two more weeks after today and we'll look at the entire human race being guilty. Paul says, if you don't think you fit into those first three categories, let me just cover all of you. And it's very powerful. Now, last week, he did something that in a sense, if you're a Jewish person, was shocking. You see, some religious people are counting on the wrong things for salvation, some Jews. But by the way, Christians do today. In fact, my guess is, I shouldn't even say my guess. I'll, tell you, I'll say it this way. The Bible says that more people are counting on the wrong things than on the right things. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, right? Right? And narrow the road that leads to salvation. So most people are counting on the wrong things. And Paul gives some examples. He says, some are counting on their ancestry. And he's talking about Jews. Because I'm a Jew, I'm going to heaven. Now, I put on the screen, it's hard to see it there, because I don't want you to think that this is in the text, but I want to apply it. Some of you say, I was born and raised in a Christian home. Some of the Jews would say, well, from the time I was a little child, I learned the scriptures, and later I taught them. And some of you would say, well, I went to Sunday school and Bible school. In fact, I, I'm a Sunday school teacher. And then thirdly, some of those Jewish people would say, I've been circumcised. So if I'm a Jew who has learned and taught and been circumcised, I'm going to heaven. And some of you would say, well, I've been baptized, so I'm going to heaven. But you see, Paul is going to pull the rug out from under them and say external acts like circumcision are only valid if one's heart is circumcised. In other words, cutting off a piece of skin on a man is a reminder that he belongs to God but has nothing to do with belonging to God. What has to be done is 
the changing of the heart. Now, thirdly, oh, before I go into thirdly, I showed you a chart last week, and I'm just trying to take what Paul said and make it really easy to follow. So he, he said, if you're a Jew and you're circumcised and you don't obey, in other words, if you don't try to follow God, then you're not circumcised. And I think some of the group in that first crowd that heard that letter went, oh, can't believe he said that. And then he says, if you're a Gentile and you've not been circumcised, but you do obey God, you try to follow him, then you are circumcised. And I think at this point, some of the Jews in the crowd got up and walked out because they said, we're not listening to this stuff. Now, I added, and I put it in yellow so you know it's not in the scripture. I'm adding it. But I think there are many people today who say, well, I'm a Christian. I was baptized, but they don't try to follow God, and so they're not baptized. That's the point Paul is making. It's not anything you do externally that saves you. Thirdly, Paul explained that what matters is not what other people say about you. And that's what most of us, we want other people to say, well, there's a good person. There, there's a man who really follows God or a woman who's a great uh, leader in the church or whatever. Uh, doesn't matter what people say, said Paul, it only matters what God says. If God is praising you, then you're okay. Now, this is today's text. I realize there's a lot on the screen there, and I'm not going to read it to you. That's not the point. The point is I want you to see it and just remind you that when you turn to the Greek text, the way Paul wrote it, there are no paragraphs. There are no capital letters. There is no punctuation. There is no italics. There is no underline. There's no parenthesis. You just turn to a group of text, and you got to go, hmm, so what's this section about? Some translations take this and divide it into two paragraphs, some into three paragraphs, and I do it in four, not because I'm saying I'm right, but I'll, you'll understand why I'm doing it four in a moment. Now, I've told you many times that when you look at a text, you should look at it, study it, and find the recurring words, because the recurring words will give you the key thought. So if you look at that for a moment, and I... I'll ask you if you're finding the recurring words because I never did. It's not there. In fact, there's one word used twice that it's, Paul is going to be using throughout Romans, and it's really hard to tell in the NIV because it's translated different, but it's the same word. We'll talk about it in a little bit. We'll talk about that later. So, so when you look at this, what is the recurring? Well, there's no particular word, but there is a kind of word. And when you find that, you go, oh, and that kind of word is a question word. You could even say it's the punctuation every time you see a question mark, but it's hard to say that because there are no question marks in the Greek. So if I just say, what, 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 will, what, how, why, why, oh, Paul's asking questions. In fact, let me show you. I broke it into four paragraphs because there are four questions. You see, Paul has just taught them that everything you've always counted on for salvation will not get you to heaven. He's taught this all over the Roman Empire, and he knows they're going to say, wait a minute, what, 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 what? And he knows exactly what they're going to ask. So he asks for them. That's what this text is about. Question one, what advantage then is there being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Question number one. So Paul, all my life I've been told because I'm a Jew, because I'm circumcised, 
that I am special with God, that I, that I have heaven's rewards, and now you're, you're undoing that, so what's the benefit of being a Jew? And you'd almost expect him to say, well, there is none. But he says, oh, no, there is. There is one answer to this question I'll give you now. By the way, he's going to give us more answers to this question later. That's all the way up in chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's going to be a long time till we get there. But Paul's going to give you more answers to this question. We'll come back to the question then. He gives one now. He says, the advantage is you have the very words of God. The very words of God. That, that phrase in the Greek is the word oracles. Now, don't misunderstand the word oracles. We think of oracles as something mystical. But in this case, in the Bible, logion, and many of you know logos in Greek is word. This is logion. This is the very scriptures that God gave to man. Today, we'd say it's the Old Testament because in those days, that's all people had was the Old Testament. So Paul says, much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Back in Acts chapter 7, we read the words of Stephen. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living words. That's logion. That means the scriptures. And Moses passed it on to us. So you might say, well, hold it. What's the advantage of growing up in a Christian home? Well, I'd say much in every way, just like Paul said. You had a head start. You had the Bible read to you. You probably prayed together before you went to sleep at night. Much in every way, a great benefit, but it won't get you to heaven. So application number one, not in your notes, but I thought it'd be silly not to do an application for each of these questions. Application one is, you have the very words of God. I know you have Bibles at home laying around probably everywhere. Do you use them? Do you know them? Do you live them? We have been committed in our ministry here for over 34 years. By the way, today's my anniversary. Today I'm finished 34 years here at Emmanuel. No, 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 you don't. No, I... I just, I'm stunned by it. I just never dreamed that this would happen, but it just amazes me that we've been committed all those years to his word, our walk, all scriptures, God breathed, his word, and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's our walk. And if you're not using his word for that purpose, then you're missing out. And Paul would say, that's your advantage. Question two. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. That's that phrase I showed you about earlier. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, the next obvious question is, well, can we still count on God? Can we count on his promises since we broke the contract? Has he also revoked the contract. Now, I realize that you may not have thought of this this way, but let me make it obvious to you. Okay, we talked earlier about buying a car. So you've decided to buy this car, and you're going to trade in your other car, and the, you and the salesman have come to a contract, and it's going to be $20,000 for you to go ahead and make this upgrade. And so the salesman signs the contract, and you sign the contract. Now, you go home and you think about it a little bit and you think, I wanted more. 
So you call that salesman and you say, you know what, I want to stay with the $20,000 price, but I want you to give me four extra tires, undercoating, a few more things. It's going to amount to several thousand dollars, but I want to keep the contract the same. And what will the salesman say? Maybe nothing. He might just hang up. Because he's not going to agree to that. Or, or let's say the other way. He, he calls you and says, you know, I thought about that contract, $20,000, and I realize I'm not making enough commission on that one. So I'm going to up it to 3000 but we'll still keep the contract. And you go, no way. No, we had a contract. You see, with man-to-man, if I break the contract or if you break the contract, it's broken. And that's what the Jews were saying. Well, we broke the contract. Is God still keeping it? Yes. Yes, because he is always faithful, even when you break the contract. The, uh, the contract. When, when the response here is, is given, Paul, Paul gives you the strongest thing he ever says in the Greek when he wants to say no. It's a way of saying, no, 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 no. It's, in the Greek, it's meginata. He will use it 10 times in Romans, more than any other place. If you want to translate it literally, it means never happened. In the King James, if you grew up with that, it was God forbid. Or in the uh, ESV, it's by no means. Or in the New American Standard, it's may it never be. The problem is in the NIV, they don't keep it the same. It's, they translate it differently. And I, I'm disappointed in that, to be honest with you. Because it's the same phrase. No, 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 no. Paul says God will never break his contract. By the way, here is the 10 times, and you don't have to read them or note them. I just want you to see how many times Paul says that. God forbid, may ginata. Now, no matter what man does, God keeps his promises, and David reminded us of that when he wrote that psalm after his sin with Bathsheba. So David is king, and David is blessed by God, and David has the spirit of God. Now that he has sinned like this, you remember what he did? He committed adultery and murder. There was lust involved, all kind of wicked stuff. So is now the contract broken? No. No, David remains king. In fact, he writes, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge because God always keeps his contract. In fact, my application to you is simple. When God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. And you can trust him. And if some of you have been like wavering in your heart on God's promises, don't waver. Joshua once told the people after all those years of leading them these words. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. So that's the kind of God we have. No matter what we do, he keeps the contract. Question three. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument here. Certainly not. If that were so, by the way, certainly not Megan Italia again. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, so the third question is, how can God judge my sin when it only makes him look good? Now, my guess is you've never used this one, but apparently it was a common Jewish question. In other words, every time I sin, I look worse, which makes God look better. So I am an evil person, and I stand before God, and he is righteous. So if I sin one more time, I even make him look better yet. I read this illustration in, I think, three different commentaries, but I thought it was so good. When you go to a jewelry store and you say, I'd like to see that necklace in this case, 
they'll often, maybe most always, take that necklace out, and before they lay it on the top of the glass case, they pull up a, maybe some black felt or black material and lay the necklace on that material because it just makes the gold or the diamonds, whatever, it just makes it jump. And that's what these people are saying. God, I sin not because I want to, because I'm just trying to make you look good. I'm the dark cloth, and you're the diamond, and I'm trying to make you shine. People were trying to justify their sin. By the way, Paul says, this is silly. I'm using a human argument here. I wouldn't even say this, but this is what other people say. God is perfectly righteous. He doesn't need you to enhance his perfection. In fact, if God needed our sin to show his righteousness, he couldn't be judge. You know what I mean by that? Let's say that God is only righteous when he stands beside me. Because I'm so black, it makes him look white. But really, he's not white. It just he makes it look white. Well, you see, if he's not really pure, then he can't be judge, is what Paul's saying. So he doesn't need your sin to make him look good. Question four. Oh, hold it. Application three. There's no way to justify your sin. By the way, this is going to be tough for some of you. Some of you say, well, hold it. I, I, yes, I did sin, I did lie, I did do that, I did hold back money, I did whatever, and I know it was wrong, but it was for the right end. It's called situational ethics. And my problem with situational ethics is always that sin is sin is sin. And you tell the truth, and you do what you're supposed to do, even if the outcome is not what you would like. James, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, well, it depends on the circumstances. No. No, for him it is sin, because that's what sin is. Question four for the Jews was, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not just say as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is just. Now, the last one, I know that one sounds like number three, doesn't it? But it's really different in this way. The last question is about the deepness of God's goodness. The third one was about making God look good compared to me. This one says, every time I sin, God's grace gets deeper. And so, it's not that I want to sin, but when I do, God always gives me more grace. So why wouldn't I give God the opportunity to provide grace. By the way, this is something that Paul dealt with all the time because these people preached legalism. By the way, the Church of America for the last 50 years or 100 years has been preaching legalism, just the same. And I know when I first got into ministry, I began preaching freedom. And I had people in my church say to me, you're giving people the license to sin. You gotta tell them not to do these things. And I said, well, the Holy Spirit tells them not to do these things. But the Bible calls us to freedom. So I don't have to worry about sinning so that I get more grace. Paul says someone might try to argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, makes it deeper. Let me show you what he says in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, I sin this much and God's grace is this much. So I sin a little more and God's grace goes up. And I sin a little more... So, so when I sin, I'm only giving God a chance to show his grace. 
Paul's response is simple. If you even ask that question, are you really a believer? I mean, should we all be walking around saying, well, I know if I sin. In fact, you know, here I am on Friday night. We're at a party. We're having fun. I'm, I'm going to sin some, but you know I'm going to church on Sunday. So I'll pray for forgiveness then. Is that the way? In fact, some people have asked me, how far can I sin before I lose my salvation or before I get away from God, whichever way you want to say it. And I say, if you're asking that question, you're on the wrong track. The question should be, how godly can I be? I, I, I won't be perfect, I know. I'm still living in a fleshly body. But how good could I possibly be with the power of the Holy Spirit within me? That's the question you should ask. Paul says, man, you're wrong to even think this way. The application number four is don't presume upon God's grace. Don't go out sinning so that, God, so that you know that God will forgive you and it's okay. Don't take his grace for granted. He's given it to you out of his wonderful kindness. In fact, remember just a, last week we looked at this. Uh, two weeks ago, I'm sorry. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God is kind. And why would you slap him in the face by intentionally trying to sin? Well, those are the four questions. And those are the four answers that Paul has probably answered a hundred times over the previous 10 years in his ministry. But he says this time, I'm just going to write them down because I know you guys are going to ask this question, so here are the answers to those questions. I'll leave this with you. I've given you four applications. Which one strikes a chord in your heart? Take a moment to think about them.